0: Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook Games. Your detective journey awaits. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Hey, Legends listeners, I've got a special extended preview to share with you. I'm sure many of you are familiar with podcast host Lindsey Graham. He hosts American History Tellers and American Scandal, among others. American History Tellers was an early inspiration for me as I was building this show. I've become friends with Lindsey over the past few years, and I want to highly recommend his new podcast. It's called History Daily, which is a pretty straightforward name. Every weekday, you get an episode that explores a pivotal moment or event that happened on that day in history, and the episodes have all the trademark high-quality music and sound design that you'd expect from Lindsay's podcasts. And before we start the preview, I want to say a quick hello and welcome aboard to all the listeners who found Legends of the Old West through History Daily. Lindsay promoted this show on History Daily a few weeks ago, and we're reciprocating now that our season about outlaws is finished. So let's get to the preview. I know you don't want to hear me ramble anymore. I picked two stories from American history to share with you, and I didn't want to double up on stories about the Old West, so I went with two episodes about the American Revolution. The first is about the Boston Tea Party, and the second is about the Battle of Princeton. You're going to hear them back-to-back with no commercials, so sit back and enjoy. When you're finished, subscribe or follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And now, here's History Daily.
1: It's August 14th, 1765, on a warm summer evening in Boston, Massachusetts. Andrew Oliver, a stamp man, slams his window shut. Outside his home, an angry mob is coming for him. Andrew was recently hired to enforce the Stamp Act, a British law that imposes new taxes on the American colonies. But many of the colonists aren't happy about this new levy, imposed by a government thousands of miles away and their justice disgruntled with Andrew for enforcing the law. Earlier this morning, his fellow colonists hung an effigy from an elm tree in town. Pinned to its chest were the initials A.O. for Andrew Oliver. The sheriff urged Andrew to run and hide, and as he listens to the mob gathering on his front lawn, he wishes he would have listened. Andrew peeks outside and sees angry men surrounding his house, their faces lit by the flickering light of burning torches. He watches as they hoist his effigy in the air before cutting off its head and lighting the body on fire. Andrew swallows and grows pale. Outside, another man grabs a rock and throws it through the window, shattering the glass. Andrew jumps, startled, as the stone skids across the floor. Spurred on by the window breaking, the crowd climbs his fence and swarms onto his front porch. Andrew runs out the back door and flees to the safety of a neighbor's house as the rioters ransack his property and destroy everything but the wine in his cellar, which they drink in celebration. After this experience, Andrew decides his new job just isn't worth it. Three days later, he resigns. But this is just the beginning of the unrest. As the British Parliament continues to impose taxes on the American colonies, the anger grows, culminating eight years later on December 16, 1773, when American colonists strike back in an act of defiance. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is December 16th, 1773, the Boston Tea Party. It's December 17th, 1765, a chilly winter's day in Boston, four months after the mob raided Andrew Oliver's house. Andrew adjusts his wig nervously as he steps onto his front porch to face another crowd of angry men. He reminds them that he's already resigned his post months ago, but these men aren't satisfied with his resignation. They insist that Andrew swears in front of the whole town that he will never again work as a stamp man. Andrew understands why they're angry. Britain may need funds to administer its growing empire, and to fill the hole in its finances left by the French and Indian War. But the Stamp Act is unfair. It demands the colonists pay a tax on printed materials, things they use every day, like newspapers, legal documents, wills, even playing cards. Stamp men, like Andrew, are meant to issue a stamp on these goods to show that the tax has been paid. But many colonists have refused to comply. On the other side of the Atlantic, debate rages in the British Parliament about the unruly American colonists. Many want them brought to heel, but some are more sympathetic, like the Irish politician Isaac Barre, who describes these colonists as Sons of Liberty. Today, Andrew Oliver wishes these Sons of Liberty currently standing on his front porch would just leave him alone, but they're not going anywhere. Not until Andrew swears an oath. It's humiliating, but to deny them would be dangerous. The Sons of Liberty are a strange hodgepodge wherein businessmen and politicians rub shoulders with bar brawlers and drunken whalers. It's a motley crew and the only thing they have in common is their hatred for Andrew. So Andrew buttons his coat and follows the rabble to the elm tree in town, now known as the Liberty Tree. In as loud a voice as he can muster, Andrew promises that he will never again enforce the Stamp Act. A large crowd of onlookers cheer with delight. But these Bostonians aren't the only ones who are sick and tired of British tyranny. The discontent is spreading throughout the colonies, fueled by the Sons of Liberty and their motto, No taxation without representation. In the coming weeks, the Sons of Liberty will keep the pressure on, boycotting British goods and attacking custom houses and the homes of tax collectors. Finally, after months of protest, in March of 1766, the British Parliament votes to repeal the Stamp Act. But the very same day, the British send a message to the colonies when Parliament passes the Declaratory Acts asserting that the British government has unrestrained legislative power over the colonies. Parliament will use that power to pass the Townsend's Act in 1767, which include the imposition of new taxes on imported goods like paint, China, glass, lead, and tea. It's June 10, 1768, dusk in Boston Harbor, and one year after the Townsend Act's. John Hancock, a wealthy shipping magnate, stands at the water's edge, his fists clenched as he watches British soldiers swarm over his ship, the Liberty. Just yesterday, a customs official accused Hancock of smuggling wine into the harbor to avoid the tariffs brought about by the Townsend Acts. Hancock denied the charges, but the British officials didn't believe him, now they are taking possession of his ship. Hancock is frustrated, but he's not surprised. This isn't the first time he's endured harassment. A few weeks ago, Hancock had to forcibly eject a customs official from one of his ships when he found the man searching his holds without a warrant. Today, as he watches the British officials commandeer the Liberty, he's angry, but he's not the only one. A crowd has started to gather at the harbor. Hancock is popular among the townsfolk, especially with the Sons of Liberty. He's well known for standing up to the British. So the crowd watching has swelled to as many as 3,000 people, enraged The mob then marches to the home of the official collector of the port, but he isn't home. So they return to the harbor, where the official maintains a pleasure boat. The mob drags this boat from the water all the way to the Liberty Tree, and there, after conducting a mock trial, they light it on fire. Meanwhile, the British maintain that John Hancock is a smuggler and have filed charges. He'll have his day in court and will be defended by John Adams, a founding father and future president of the United States. Adams will get the charges against Hancock dropped, but the British will not return Hancock's ship. Instead, they will repurpose the Liberty to serve as part of the British Royal Navy, using Hancock's ship to patrol for custom violations. In retaliation, disgruntled American colonists will board the Liberty and burn it in protest. But the turmoil in Boston Harbor is just beginning. The British will send more troops to occupy the city, but they will not succeed in quelling the unrest, Rather, the growing number of redcoats will unite the colonists, pushing them one step closer to revolution. It's the evening of March 5th, 1770 in Boston, two years after John Hancock's ship was confiscated. The air is frigid and the streets are lined with snow. A British private named Hugh White stands guard outside the Customs House on King Street, the place where British officials collect taxes. Just after 9 p.m., a group of young men, American colonists, approach White and begin to taunt him. Tensions have been high between the colonists and the British soldiers for some time. Many colonists, like these young men, resent the presence of the Redcoats in Boston, just like they resent the high tariffs imposed by the Townsend Acts. As the colonists continue to taunt him, Private White grows increasingly angry. Fed up at the constant barrage of insults, Weist hoists his heavy gun in the air and strikes one of the young men. Word of this assault quickly spreads throughout the streets, and soon the small group of young colonists grows into a large group of angry colonists. Among them, Crispus Attucks, a multiracial sailor who was part African-American and part Nantucket Indian. Outnumbered, Private White retreats to the top of the steps in front of the customs house. He loads his gun and threatens to open fire. The crowd below answers White by pelting him with ice and snow. White calls for reinforcements, and soon seven armed British soldiers arrive on the scene. In the midst of this tense standoff, someone cries out, Fire! The soldiers discharge their weapons into the crowd. Crispus Attucks falls to the slushy ground, a crimson puddle growing beneath him from the hole the musket ball tore through his flesh. Crispus Attucks is the first man to die in the American Revolution. When the smoke clears, two more colonists are dead. Two others will die later as a result of their wounds. The fallen will be treated as heroes, their bodies transported to Boston's Fanel Hall, where they lie in state for three days. More than half of Boston's population will join the procession carrying the victims' caskets to the graveyard. In a twist of irony, though, on the same day as the Boston Massacre, the Prime Minister of Great Britain asks Parliament to repeal the Townsend Acts. But it will take time for the news to cross the ocean, and it wasn't a complete repeal. The British want to retain some symbol of power over the colonies— So they canceled the taxes on everything but tea. It's the afternoon of December 16th, 1773, in Milton, Massachusetts, three years after the Boston Massacre. Francis Roch, a shipowner, shivers in the icy wind as he waits outside the home of Thomas Hutchinson, the acting governor of Massachusetts. Francis traveled 10 miles south from Boston to confront Hutchinson, He's stuck in the middle of a tea crisis. Two of his ships, the Dartmouth and the Beaver, are docked in Boston Harbor, their holds packed with tea. But the American colonists do not want Francis to unload his cargo, because it belongs to the British East India Tea Company. Months ago, Parliament passed the Tea Act, a law designed to save the failing East India Tea Company from bankruptcy. The Tea Act lowered the duty the company paid on tea to the British government, and in so doing gave such a cost advantage to the East India Tea Company that they enjoyed a de facto monopoly undercutting the business of colonial merchants. So today, the colonists want Francis to return this tea back to London. But Francis's ships can't leave the harbor without permission from the acting governor. So far, Hutchinson has refused. He wants the tea unloaded immediately so he can collect the tea tax as small as it is. At last, Governor Hutchinson comes to the door. Francis pleads with him for permission to sail back to London. But once again, the governor refuses. Irritated, Francis gets back into his carriage. He tells the driver to make for Boston and fast. He has a message to deliver. When Francis's carriage arrives in Boston, he heads straight for the Old South Meeting House, where hundreds wait for his arrival. As Francis opens the door of the meeting house, the heat of the packed bodies hits his cold cheeks. He pushes into the room and explains that Governor Hutchinson will not allow his ships to leave until the tea is unloaded and the tax is paid. The crowd groans with frustration. There are representatives of several towns here, men of all ages, colors, and creeds, but all sick of being forced to accept taxes imposed without their consent. Samuel Adams, one of the leaders of the Sons of Liberty, climbs on top of a bench and begins shouting, this meeting can do nothing more to save the country and the crowd roars in agreement. Soon, Samuel Adams and the other members of the Sons of Liberty take to the streets and matters into their own hands. And through a brazen act of defiance, they will strike a blow for Liberty. It's late at night on December 16, 1773, at Griffin's Wharf in Boston Harbor, not long after Francis Roch made his way into the Old South Meeting House. George Hughes, a Boston shoemaker, stands with a somber group of men at the water's edge. In the moonlight, George can make out the furled sails of the ships they plan to raid. Further out, he sees the shadows of British gunships. His heart begins to pound with excitement and trepidation sons of liberty have come up with a daring plan. The British want the tea unloaded, so the colonists decide to give them what they want and unload it into the water. The plan is so audacious that the men have disguised themselves as Mohawk tribesmen. They've rubbed coal dust on their faces and put feathers in their hair in an attempt to make their disguises authentic. There are three ships held to ransom the harbor, Francis Rocha's ships, the Dartmouth and Beaver, and another ship, the Eleanor. As George Hughes boards the Dartmouth, he asks the bleary-eyed captain for the keys to the hatches and a dozen candles. Then he helps haul the first chest of tea onto the deck. He smashes his hatchet into the lid, and the scent of tea fills the air. George drags the splintered chest onto the gunwale of the ship. The chest balances there for a moment, then falls into the harbor with a splash. Over the next three hours, the Sons of Liberty will throw 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor. The British government will react with fury. It will close the Port of Boston, impose martial law, and implement another set of harsh laws known as the Intolerable Acts. But this will only fan the flames of revolution. In 1775, British soldiers will cut down the Liberty Tree, but still the rebels will not be cowed A year later, in 1776, the American colonies will be on a path to freedom from Britain at last, as John Hancock is the first to sign the Declaration of Independence. Three years prior, Hancock had written, no one circumstance could possibly have taken place more effectively to unite the colonies than this maneuver of the T, all on that frigid night in Boston Harbor on December 16th, 1773. Next on History Daily, on December 17, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright achieved the first powered, sustained, and controlled airplane flight in history. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily. Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Vanessa DeHaan. Executive producers are Steve Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. It's 8 a.m. on December 26, 1776, in the city of Trenton, New Jersey. Inside the bedroom of a small house on King Street, a group of German soldiers, known as Hessians, wake up with stinging hangovers from the previous day's drinking. They've been celebrating Christmas with plenty of beer, and some of these men are determined that the festivities will continue into today. As the men rouse and then immediately pour glasses and toast to their health, They feel they've earned this brief Christmas reprieve after months of heavy fighting against the colonial forces. These 1,500 Hessians are soldiers for hire. They've been on the payroll of the British Empire ever since the American colonies declared their War of Independence. In that time, the Hessians have earned a reputation for being fearsome warriors and have helped to decimate the Continental Army led by General George Washington. At the Battle of Long Island in Manhattan, the Hessians slaughtered colonial troops by the hundreds They don't consider the dwindling American army to be much of a threat, nor do they expect to have to defend themselves this morning. But outside in the street comes a shout of alarm. Der Fiend! Der Fiend! The enemy! The enemy! Shooting starts, and the Hessians scramble out of bed and grab their bayonets. Some of them take the time to put on their bright blue uniforms, while others simply dash out of the house in their underwear. All along the main road, Hessians emerge from various homes in astonishment to find colonial soldiers on horseback, streaming into the snow-covered streets of Trenton from two sides. Backed by the sound of thunderous cannons, the colonial soldiers are heavily armed, and they appear to outnumber the Hessians two to one. Until today, the Hessians were convinced that they were on the winning side of a bitter conflict between the British colonists and the American patriots. But starting at Trenton, and culminating in just over a week's time, George Washington will lead a series of victories that will prove the American Revolution is far from over. On January 3rd, 1777, at the Battle of Princeton, Washington and his army will perform an extraordinary military feat that will turn the tide of the war and alter the course of history. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is January 3rd, 1777. The Battle of Princeton It's December 26, 1776, in the city of Trenton, New Jersey. Just over a week before the Battle of Princeton. General George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army of the Thirteen Colonies, observes the Battle of Trenton from the high ground at the north of the city. From here, he can direct his army of 2,400 men and witness the action from a good vantage point, He has a decent view of the two main streets at the center of Trenton, although they are now clouded with musket smoke. But the Hessians are easy to spot in their brightly colored uniforms. Among them, Washington recognizes the uniform of Colonel Johann Rall, the commander of the Hessian brigade. Rall rides a horse through Trenton, trying to regain control of the city, but it's a lost cause. Washington's plan for this surprise attack was simple, but effective he divided his men into two flanking columns that would attack the city simultaneously under the cover of darkness backed by cannon fire. The outnumbered Hessians are already buckling under the onslaught and Washington feels proud that his plan is working and that his army is performing, especially considering what a poor state they were in just days before. Ever since the Continental Army's defeat in New York at the Battle of Long Island, an alarming number of his soldiers have deserted Washington needs a big victory to boost morale and recruitment. He knows that if he cannot secure some key victories for the Continental Army very soon, morale will plummet even more, and this glorious revolution that he and so many others have devoted their lives to will be doomed to failure. To that end, his army has just performed a daring feat that will go down as one of the most significant moments in American history. Late yesterday evening, under the cover of darkness, Washington and his army managed to row themselves and their heavy artillery over the freezing Delaware River in order to carry out the surprise attack on Trenton. It was a hugely perilous and logistical challenge, especially considering that most of his men can't swim. At any point, thick packs of ice could have collided with their boats, pulling them into the icy depths. Washington considers it a miracle that it didn't happen. Instead, in the early hours of December 26th, he and his entire army successfully made it across the Delaware and began the grueling nine-mile march to Trenton. Washington had been privately concerned that putting his men through such an ordeal the night before a battle might break their spirits, but as he watches the vigor which with they attacked the Hessian garrison, he realizes he was right to believe in them. Washington watches as Colonel Rawl unsuccessfully attempts to rally his troops and establish a defensive perimeter. The Hessians have garnered a reputation for being formidable opponents, but today Washington's men prove the tougher combatants as they surge through the streets, shooting Hessians down on every corner. Washington feels little pity, considering what they did to his troops on Long Island. Just then, Washington hears a gunshot crack above the fray. He watches as Colonel Rawl, the Hessian commander, slumps over his horse and falls to the ground. With their commander dead, it doesn't take long for the remaining Hessians to throw down their weapons and surrender. Washington exhales in relief. With the battle over, Washington and his generals assess their victory. It soon established that 22 Hessian soldiers were killed, including Colonel Rawl. 92 were wounded. 900 have been taken prisoner. The rest have fled the city. By contrast, Washington is informed that his army has only suffered two deaths this morning with only a handful of casualties. But Washington is not ready to celebrate just yet. However morale-boosting this victory at Trenton might be, Washington knows it's just the beginning of his campaign. The more pivotal battle will take place just north of here on January 3rd, 1777 in Princeton. There, General George Washington will lead his newly emboldened troops into a battle that will turn the tide of the war. It's December 30th, 1776, four days before the Battle of Princeton, on the south side of Assenpink Creek, a small tributary that flows into the Delaware River, which divides New Jersey from Pennsylvania. General George Washington rides atop a large black steed and addresses his assembled troops of over 2,000 men. He knows the outcome of the appeal he is about to make is vital to the success of the American Revolution. He is also aware that he's already asked a great deal of these brave soldiers but he has no choice but to persuade them all to keep fighting, even though as of tomorrow, most of them no longer have to. On December 31st, the enlistment of many of his soldiers will be up, meaning his men can legally leave the army and return home. To entice them to stay and fight, he's offered them a bounty of $10 per man, the equivalent of just over $300 today. But Washington knows this small amount of money alone will not compel them. He hopes to appeal to their sense of duty. He tells them, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected, but your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. If you will consent to stay only one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably can never do under any other circumstances. Upon completing his speech, Washington waits to see if anyone will step forward to show their allegiance. For some long seconds, it appears nobody will. Then one soldier volunteers, then another. Before long, all of the assembled troops have stepped forward to declare their loyalty to Washington and to the Revolution. Washington nods in appreciation, knowing that with strong-hearted men like these, anything is possible, even defeating the British. It's January 2nd, 1777, on the north side of Assunpink Creek in Trenton, New Jersey. Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis, commander of the British Infantry, is frustrated. He marched here with thousands of red-coated soldiers to take back Trenton from the Americans. Cornwallis expected to easily overwhelm Washington's forces, which are only roughly half the size of his. But the Continental Army has not been so easy to defeat. As Cornwallis marched towards Trenton, Washington's troops employed delay tactics, repeatedly attacking Cornwallis and then retreating in an effort to buy time. Washington used that time to build a defensive line on the south side of Azimping Creek. Washington and his men have formed ranks safely behind it. And now Cornwallis and his troops stand on the north side of the creek. In order to attack, Cornwallis' men must first make it across a small wooden bridge. Three times now, Cornwallis has ordered his men to cross that bridge, But each time, his soldiers were repelled by American cannons. The bridge is now red with British blood, and night is falling. Cornwallis is irritated, but confident that Washington is pinned down with nowhere to run. So Cornwallis orders his men to make camp for the night, telling them, we've got the old fox now. We'll go over and bag him in the morning. Throughout the night, the British try their best to keep a watchful eye on the Continental Army. They can't see the enemy over the high trees, but they do see the flames of their fires flickering through the branches. And they hear the clang of their tools as the Americans prepare to set up permanent camp. At dawn the next day, Cornwallis orders his men to charge the bridge for a fourth time. He is delighted when they meet little resistance. But when Cornwallis gets to the other side, he is astonished to discover that the fox has slipped away. Instead of encountering Washington's full force, the British find the camp deserted, Soon, Cornwallis learns the truth. General Washington knew he was outmanned, so he ordered a small number of his men to clang tools and burn fires high throughout the night to trick the British into believing they were making camp. At the same time, he marched the bulk of his army northeast to Princeton to launch another surprise attack. It's January 3rd, 1777, at dawn. On the road to Princeton, General Washington has stopped his advance to consult with one of his top advisors. Washington wants to take Princeton, Cornwallis's primary route of communications with British-occupied New York. Washington received intelligence reports that the west side of Princeton is heavily defended, but the east side is open. Washington hoped to reach Princeton before daybreak and attack the city from the east, but traveling at night took longer than expected. Now, as he confers with his fellow officers, Washington is frustrated because the sun is up and he's still two miles away. Without the cover of darkness on his side, Washington is forced to alter his plan. He orders most of his troops to continue on to Princeton where he hopes to surprise the 1200 British troops who are garrisoned there. But he also orders one of his officers, Brigadier General Hugh Mercer, to take a small detachment of 300 men west to destroy a bridge to slow Cornwallis' ability to pursue them. But with these orders, Washington has just sent General Mercer and his detachment right into the sights of the enemy. It's January 3rd, 1777 at Clark Farm, not far from Princeton. General Mercer and over 300 troops make their way through an orchard in the early morning light. Mercer and his detachment are on their way to destroy a nearby bridge, and they are in grave danger. 2,000 British troops have spotted them and are poised to attack. Last night, Lord Cornwallis ordered these soldiers to leave Princeton and march south to Trenton to help Cornwallis attack General Washington. On their way, these British soldiers spotted Mercer and his detachment on the march. Now, the British officer in charge orders an attack. The stillness of the morning is interrupted by a cacophony of gunfire. Eventually, the Redcoats charge with their bayonets in the air. But when they see General Mercer at the center of the ferocious fight, they are certain he must be George Washington. The British soldiers surround, taunt, and stab Mercer repeatedly until he falls to the ground mortally wounded. The British roar in triumph, but they have not killed the man they think they have. Instead, they will meet Washington later When he receives news of Mercer's death, Washington is devastated. He sends a militia to aid what remains of Mercer's detachment. But seeing the state of Mercer's men, the militia begins to flee. Eventually, Washington rides into the fray himself with reinforcements and rallies the fleeing militia, leading a counterattack against the British troops that places him directly in the field of fire. One of Washington's officers pulls his hat over his eyes to avoid seeing his commander killed in the crossfire. The two armies fire incessantly, and soon the field is completely obscured in a cloud of smoke. When it clears, Washington is unscathed. He waves his men forward. The overwhelmed British are forced to break ranks and retreat from the city. Galloping after them, Washington cries out, "'It's a fine fox chase, my boys!' Soon after this, Washington drives what's left of the British garrison out of Princeton. Washington achieves a well-publicized victory one that renews confidence in America's ability to break free of British rule. And as a result, over the coming months, many new recruits will join the Patriot cause. Just two weeks earlier, the Continental Army had been on the verge of defeat. But now, thanks to the military prowess of George Washington and the resilience of his men, the American Revolution looks poised for success. But the War of Independence is far from over. There will be six more years of fighting before ultimate victory is achieved. But thanks to the stunning set of victories that culminated at Princeton on January 3, 1777, the eventual success of that revolution felt for a moment inevitable. Next on History Daily, January 4, 1853. After being kidnapped and sold into slavery in the American South, Solomon Northam regains his freedom. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, Hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship, Pascal Hughes for Noiser.